I want to welcome everyone to tonight's Roots uh, session, the seven churches of Revelation and the rapture of the church. Tonight is going to be the rapture session number five. That means we'll only have one more session after tonight and we'll finish up this semester of Roots. And tonight as we begin this session, I'm going to pray and ask a question. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that your word will reveal to us um, the scriptures so that the scriptures would be able to reveal to us your expectations of how we should live our lives while we wait for the return of Christ. So Lord, tonight, would you accomplish that for the glory of your name and for the souls of man, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. How now shall we live? It was years ago I read a book by Chuck Colson by that title. I always uh, I loved the book and uh, really respected the writer, Chuck Colson. Uh, since then, he has gone on to be with the Lord. Tonight, I ask a question from a totally different context. Knowing what we know right now, based upon these sessions, how now shall we live? By this time, we've covered the seven churches of Revelation and most of the scriptures revealing the coming of Christ uh, to take his bride to the wedding in heaven. I wrote these root sessions in January, long before we knew anything about a coronavirus and, and a pandemic and the fact that the, the church was, go, was going to be unable to meet together. I, I wrote all of these sessions way back in January before we had any clue about these current events. But I asked the question, how now shall we live? All of this teaching is meaningless. Every one of these sessions is meaningless unless it prepares us for the coming of Christ, the wedding. All of the teaching, what's the point of all of this? The seven churches of Revelation and what's the point of, of studying the, the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, the wedding supper of the Lamb? What's the point of all of it if it doesn't prepare us for the event? So I'll ask a question. Are you ready for the rapture? I have some people that want to argue with me. In fact, I've gotten some emails. Uh, people want to argue and, and be angry because I, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture um, versus a mid-tribulation. And rather than just saying, let's use whatever to prepare ourselves, some people want to argue about it. And the argument to me is meaningless. Are you ready for the event? One way or the other, we're going to go and meet God. Is your family ready? Are you ready for the rapture? Is your family ready? Are your friends ready? Do you feel any responsibility in your life to make sure that you're ready, your family's ready, your friends ready, your circle's ready? Do you feel any burden of responsibility? Because I do. I surely do. So how now shall we live now that we know what's coming at any time? Because when you study the scriptures, one thing is clear. There is an imminent event that's coming. I don't know the day. I don't know the hour. But how should we live knowing what's coming? And it can come at any time. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to Titus. 
And, he wrote, and in that same letter to Titus, he's talking to the church. So to Titus and the church, uh, let's look at that to answer the question, how now shall we live? Let's start there tonight. Paul wrote this letter, and in light of what Paul knew then, in light of what Paul knew then and what we know right now, how now shall we live? Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has been revealed. That was the cross. The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Death, burial, resurrection, Jesus. The grace of God bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living. Turn from sinful pleasures. Turn. That's the concept of repentance. You turn. You change your face. But rather than walking away from God, you turn around and face God. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. Wisdom, righteousness, devotion to God. While we look forward, notice the text. While we, while we look forward with hope, how now shall we live? We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and make us his very own people. Totally committed. He, he gave his life so that you and I could be totally committed to doing good deeds under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is our high calling. This is not some sideline we'll get to when we finish our uh, desires of our heart. This is our high calling. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who know the truth. This scripture de describes my purpose and my hope in life. How now shall we live? My hope, I'm not going to apologize, is the soon return of Christ. My deliverer is coming. I had an encounter with God years ago, and in that encounter, I came to the conclusion that the, the return of Christ was not only imminent, that, but there was a high possibility, probability that I would see the return of Christ in my lifetime. This hope is the fuel of my faith. Let me say that clearly. This hope, this expectancy, this longing, this waiting that something's coming over the next hill. It's getting closer, 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 closer. It's not here yet. This hope, this expectancy in the return of Christ is the fuel of my faith. I'm convinced, I, I, I'm fearful that if I ever lost this hope, this anxious anticipation that's inside of me, I'm afraid that I would also lose my faith if I lost this hope. This belief that I will see the return of Christ. You see, this is not new. When you study the scriptures, something becomes very clear. This is not new. This is how the New Testament writers lived their lives. They were anxiously awaiting the return of Jesus for his bride, the church. And I want to make that point really clear. How now shall we live? Well, how do you think Peter lived? How do you think Paul lived? How do you think the New Testament writers, how did they live? 
We should, should we be any less anxious today for the return of Christ than Paul? Do you know how he lived his life? Anxiously anticipating the return of Christ. Yes, even in the first century church, he was fully anxiously expecting, awaiting the return of Christ. What about Peter? What about John? Should we be any less anxious today for the return of Christ than those three guys, for example? That sense of expectancy regarding the imminent return of their Lord was their call to holiness. Because their call to holiness was to be prepared, ready and waiting when the event happened. To be called ready and waiting for the event when it happens. Because it could happen at any moment. So let's get into the scriptures. Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome. A Gentile church. In Romans 13 verse 11, the apostle Paul says, This is all the more urgent. You see why this is urgent? For you know how late it is. The time is running out. Now listen, if the time was running out for the Apostle Paul, if he, under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter to a church, how much more urgent is it right now? How much more urgent is it right now knowing we're in a pandemic, a worldwide event? This is all the more urgent for you to know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up for your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day of salvation will soon be here. Can you read his writing? He's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The night is gone. The day of salvation will be coming soon. So remove your dark deeds. How now shall we live in light of the imminent return of Christ? Remove the dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness or wild parties or drunkenness or in the sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarrelsome quarreling and jealousy. Instead of that, how now shall we live? Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I clothe myself with his presence? We're going to talk about that. Instead of following the world into the darkness, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires, your sin nature. How now shall we live? That was written according to the Apostle Paul. And let me just summarize what I just read. Urgent. Like time's running out. And one thing I've noticed that this coronavirus has done to the world, it has created a sense of urgency. Suddenly people understand that that time is precious. Things you once could do anytime you wanted to do, you can't necessarily do them anytime you want to do now. Time is precious. There's an urgency like time is running out. Paul says to be awake, alert, and watchful, paying attention to everything that's going on in the world today. The night is almost gone. Paying attention, ready and waiting. I remember reading something from Billy Graham years ago. He said each day he would wake up and read the newspaper to see what's going on in the world, and then he would open the Bible to see what it meant. 
The night is almost gone. And when I talk like this, and I know, I know how people respond. When I talk like this, I have church people, even friends of mine who make fun of me for this type of talk. This idea that we should always live with this expectancy. We're always, 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 you're always talking about the coming of Christ. Yes, I'm always talking about the coming of Christ. It is my heart's desire. It is the longing that he has placed inside of me. Look at how Peter are you going to make fun of Paul? Because he talks about it. Are you going to make fun of Peter? Because he talks about it. Look at how Peter talks about how we should live our life while we are in expectancy of the return of Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. So think clearly. Exercise self-control. What's the context? There's an imminent event that's going to change you and the world, and that's the return of Jesus. And why? what should I do in the meantime? Think clearly. Exercise self-control. Look forward to the glorious salvation. Look forward. It doesn't mean you never think about it. It means you're always thinking about it. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come. When, when, not if, when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live. You must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your, old, uh, your own sinful nature, your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy. Now, now we live different. Now that I know of this imminent coming of Christ, that I'm going to meet him at any time. I don't know how. Maybe it'll be through the grave. Maybe it'll be through the air. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy for the scriptures say you must, you must be holy because I am holy. Peter again, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of the world is coming soon. Would you make fun of Peter? Would you think he's being dramatic? Why is he saying this? Because the Holy Spirit is impressing upon him the imminent event that will change the whole world. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest. Therefore, be disciplined. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend like it'll never happen or it's going to happen to everybody but you. Be disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We're all, but we're all looking forward to the new heaven. Is that you? Does it ever cross your mind that this one's going to burn up and this one's going to pass away and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth are going to disappear? We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised us. A world filled with God's righteousness. Yes, 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 I'm looking forward to that. And so, dear friends, while we're waiting for these things to happen, do you see everything that Paul and Peter are talking about? While we're waiting for these things to happen, how now shall we live? While we're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. That's Paul and that's Peter. Would you make fun of them because they anxiously anticipated the imminent return of Christ? Would you say, well, they blew it because Jesus didn't come while they were living? I'll ask you a question. Where do you think they are now? 
Peter and Paul. You see, I'm convinced that they have experienced already the presence of God. Now, their bodies, their, their body, their shell, their tent is somewhere buried in the earth waiting the resurrection of the last day. But I'm convinced that when they breathed their last breath, angels took them into the presence of God. Would you make fun of them? Because that was what prepared them for that moment. Either through the grave or through the clouds, they were prepared for that moment. So that's Paul and that's Peter. Let's add a third character. What about John? Should we be any less anxious or excited about the return of Christ than John? Let's look at 1 John chapter 3. John says, see how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children. And that's what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children. You see, they don't get it. I understand why the people who belong to this world make fun of me because I'm anxiously anticipating a worldwide imminent event, the return of Christ. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children. They don't know him because they don't know who he is. Dear friends, verse 2, we are already God's children I'm not waiting for the imminent event that will then make me God's child. We are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we'll be like him. Let that sink in for a moment. I don't know what everything's going to be like when he calls me home. But I do know I'll be like him. For we will see him as he really is. And listen to verse 3. Should, should I be any less anxious than this guy, John? And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he, Christ, is pure. Can you see how Paul, Peter, and John describe their life of waiting on Jesus' return? So how now shall we live? I'm convinced that the church... Listen carefully. I'm convinced. I've had this conversation with some people I have great respect with, both Bob Russell and Dr. David Reagan. I remember having this conversation specifically with both of them. We came to this conclusion together that the church that legitimately lives with expectancy of the imminent return of Christ will always do two things naturally. Number one, they will purify their own lives. And number two, they will share the news with others. Two things will naturally happen. When you believe that at any moment Jesus could come for his bride, you will purify your life of sin. If there's any sin, you'll purify yourself through confession and repentance. You'll make yourself right with God. And number two, you'll go tell somebody how to do the same thing in their life. And they'll go tell somebody how to do the same thing in their life so that people will be prepared. And guess what? When I studied the mission of the church, that was it. That we would purify our lives. The Holy Spirit would come into us and he would set us on a mission to tell the good news to those who don't know how to make themselves ready for the return of Christ. Jesus has clearly identified the church as the light of the world. How can we influence the dark world if we become like 
the dark world. The church is the restrainer of evil. Let there be no doubt. The church is the restrainer of evil and darkness. And one day, we've already studied it. One day, the Bible has already stated. One day, the church will be taken out of the way. And the evil and the darkness will take the whole planet And the Antichrist will rise in a time referred to as the Great Tribulation. But until then, what do we do? Until then, how now shall we live? We must live in the pursuit of holiness. In the pursuit of Christ-likeness. This is our high calling in Jesus Christ. We are called to know God the Father. We are called to know God, the Father, by coming to know Jesus, the Son. We know the Father by experiencing the Son. How can I come to know God, the Father? For God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says. So how can you and I Come to know God. We can come to know God by coming to know the Son. And that begs the next question. Well, he's been gone now for some 2,000 years. Yes, he sits at the right hand of the Father, but I can't see him there right now. So if getting to know God, I need to know the Son, then how can I get to know the Son? The Son is revealed through the Word, and the power of the Holy Spirit reveals the Word. We know the Father by experiencing the Son through the Word, through the Holy Spirit. This is a relationship of light. Let me make it clear. How? What does it look like to know the Son, which is to know the Father? This is a relationship of light, of truth, of holiness. It is experiential. We have experienced God, when we come to know Jesus Christ, the Son, this encounter with God has given us a new life. Maybe it's going to be a hard life, but know this. We have experienced God when we have encountered the Son of God through the Word of God. One of my favorite authors of all time, Henry Blackaby, his Bible study experience in God radically transformed my life. And that study uh, says this, and Henry Blackaby would say this, if you want to have an encounter with God, here it is. Just open this book and start reading. You will have an encounter with God. You will experience him through his word. So in that word, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Is this the truth? Is this absolute authority from God himself? Jesus delivering absolutely authoritative truth. You cannot see ever the kingdom of God unless you can be born again. What do you mean you cannot see the kingdom? You cannot see any of this this truth until you encounter God. None of this makes any sense until you encounter the truth 
And the truth will set you free. And the truth and the freedom are revealing a person who can make you born again, a new person. He is the revealer of truth. John 17, 3. Jesus again says this. And this is the way. Not one of many ways. This is the singular way to have eternal life. To know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to the earth. These are not some of the ways to the kingdom of God. They explain the only way into the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You cannot enter the kingdom. You won't even know about the kingdom of God until you experience the truth of God that reveals the Son of God and the kingdom of God. And here's the truth. Listen carefully. We've already read it. We've already talked about it at much length. Many will be left behind when the bridegroom comes. How now shall we live? I'm going to tell you, many will be left behind when the bridegroom comes. It horrifies me that Jesus' parable, and we've studied it already at some detail, it horrifies me that Jesus' parable described five who were prepared to go with the bridegroom and five that didn't make it. How were they prepared? Let's look at the word that sets people free. How will, what separated the five that went through the door when the bridegroom came? And, and what made the other five unprepared, unable to go through the door when the bridegroom came? How were they prepared? The Bible says they had oil in their lamps and they had made themselves ready. They had oil in their lamps. They had made themselves ready. The gospel of Matthew records both the parable of the 10 bridesmaids and the parable of the three servants, both at the end of Jesus's Olivet Discourse, where Jesus specifically describes his return to the earth. Both of these parables of Jesus deal with people not being ready and not being in waiting. Did you notice that? Jesus is all about discourse. He gives it on a Wednesday before he'll die on a Friday. And in that Olivet Discourse, he, it, it, the parable of the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids, the parable of the three servants, both of them are dealing specifically with there will be people who are not ready, they're not waiting, and they're going to miss God's gift of eternal life. Why did Jesus tell this story? Notice that he specifically says this about the kingdom of heaven. He is connecting the parable of the ten virgins to the kingdom of heaven. So I want to do something. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 25 again. <clears throat> the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And the reason I want to do that tonight specifically it is to answer the question, how now shall we live? While we live in this urgent expectancy of an imminent event, and we're living in a pandemic world right now where the church can't even assemble in the room together. How now shall we live? Well, let's let Jesus explain and answer the question. Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of ten bridesmaids 
who took their lamps and went off to went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, notice in the story, why does Jesus bring this up? When the bridegroom was delayed, they all, all ten, became drowsy. And they all, all ten, fell asleep. The bridegroom's been delayed. I thought you'd be here by now. At midnight, they were roused by the shout. Look, the bridegroom's coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids. Do you notice there's 10 in that sentence? All the bridesmaids got up and all the bridesmaids prepared their lamps. And then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, I want, don't miss this. The warning has been given. The bridegroom's coming. There was something that gave them a heads up. Get your lamp ready. Get your lamp ready. The bridegroom's been delayed. I thought you'd be here by now. We got drowsy. We got sleepy. But there's a warning. God's mercy gave a warning. And while they were gone to buy oil. See, these people, these foolish bridesmaids thought, I can deal with that later. But the warnings already came. No, no, I'll go deal with that later. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. There's the imminent without warning. You see, the shout came at midnight. And then they scattered and went for oil. And then the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, and those who were ready, and those who were ready, Maybe they got made fun of because they always were ready. They were always waiting. And they talked about the bridegroom coming all the time. And sometimes that wears people out, especially if you're not ready and you're really not focused on the bridegroom at all. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too. Here's Jesus. He's wrapped up the story. And what's his instruction to us? So you too must keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour of my return. You must keep watch. So let's ask a practical question right now. How do we keep watch? What does that really look like? How now shall we live in light of this crazy world we live in? Right now, let, let's be practical. How now shall we live? How now shall we keep watch? What would it look like? 
Do you feel any urgency? Let's, let me start with some questions. Do you feel any urgency right now in the midst of this worldwide pandemic for yourself? Do you feel any urgency for your family? Do you feel any urgency for your friends? I want to tell you, my family got together with my kids and my grandkids, and we were all together, and I very clearly communicated that, that I, I, my heart anticipates the sooner return of Christ. And I told my children of all, everything else, you make sure you're right with God. Because nothing else is going to matter. When the bridegroom comes and the door opens, nothing else is going to matter. Is that you're ready. And there's oil in your lamp. And you're ready. I've been expecting you. So how do you make sure there's oil in our lamps when the bridegroom comes? Let's be practical. How can, how can we make sure there's oil in our lamps when the bridegroom comes? Will there truly be people left behind after the church is gone? And what do you think life will be like in the absence of the church? What do you think it'll be like when the light of the world leaves and all that's left is darkness? What do you think it'll be like when the restrainer of evil on planet earth no longer restrains evil on planet earth? You see, five of the bridesmaids didn't make it. And did you notice that all 10 of them had gone out to meet the bridegroom? In Jesus' story. All ten went out to meet the bridegroom. That's sobering to me. All ten became drowsy and they all fell asleep. When there was a delay in his coming. But there was a shout. And this is interesting to me. Very interesting to me. But there was a shout. There was a warning. There was a message. Prepare yourself. So I have to assume that somehow God's mercy allows some time. I don't know how much time. I don't know what the circumstance is. There was a shout, a warning, a message to prepare. Light your lamps. The time of the wedding is near. Five of them were in it for however long it took. They lived with an expectancy, and they were in it for the long run. Five of them were not prepared for the delay. Listen carefully. But there was a delay. They got drowsy. They fell asleep. They got preoccupied with something else. And they eventually have to go to town to get what they should already have had. They were not prepared for the delay, not prepared for the time. They would have to wait for the bridegroom. And that brings us to here and that brings us to now in our present world. Are you prepared for the delay? To wait for however long it takes before the wedding? Would you become drowsy and sleepy and distracted? Where are you getting your oil? Because ultimately, when I read this, that's the question that keeps coming into my mind. Where are you getting your oil? What is the source of your light today? You see, in the story, something is really clear. And I want to make sure everybody understands it. Oil is the source of light in Jesus' story. Oil was the source. They, they burned olive oil. It was, a, it was a flame that came from the olive oil in the lamp. But 
the, the, the light didn't work without the oil. The oil was the source of the light in Jesus' story. And the light, and listen, and the light is always in Jesus' story the symbol of truth. So, I'll say it again. If oil is the source of light in Jesus' story and light is the source or the symbol of truth, where are you getting your truth today? Because it'll probably tell you where you're getting your oil today. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this, just a simple sentence, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Five of the bridesmaids needed to go to town and get more oil. Five of the bridesmaids had an abundant and inexhaustible supply of oil. If this oil is the source of light and light is the symbol of truth, the big question is where are you getting your truth? The big question is, where are you getting your truth? Do you think you can go pick up some truth later after the imminent event comes to your world, to your life? Then you'll go find some truth? There's only one truth that produces this one light that opens the kingdom of heaven. And you can't get enough of this oil in town. In fact, I found town doesn't sell a lot of this type of oil. If the source of your oil, your source of truth is town, you're going to miss the wedding. Can I make it real clear? If the source of your truth, the source of your light, your oil, you have to get it in town, I'm afraid you're already going to miss the wedding. You see, without this oil, without this truth, without this light, you'll be sick and dying when the bridegroom comes. You're going to miss the wedding altogether. You see, the religious elites in Jerusalem thought they had the right oil in their lamps, right? Read the stories. The religious people, they, were, they had religion. They didn't have the truth. In fact, truth stood right in front of them, and they couldn't see it. They thought they had the right oil in their lamps, but they were wrong. You see, these two fishermen, Peter and John, had just in Jerusalem, they had just healed a crippled man. And they just took this crippled man's silver and gold. I do not have, but what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. You see, what they're doing is they're taking this truth, this oil, this light, and they're giving it to this crippled man in Jerusalem. They're putting oil in his lamp. And what was the oil and what does it do? So let's go look at the story. What was the oil and what, what, what did it do to this crippled man in Jerusalem who, who lived at the Jerusalem temple, near the temple, where all the religious folks thought they had oil lived? It's found in Acts 4, verse 10. Let me clearly state to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that he was healed, this crippled man was healed by the powerful name. You want some truth? You want some oil to put in your lamp? That this healing 
was by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. Anybody listening? There is salvation in no one else. And God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other oil. There is no other light. There is no other light. This is it. This oil, this light, this truth saves you. It saves your soul by revealing the truth about God, the truth about me, the truth truth about the world, the truth about the truth. There is no other oil. There is no other Savior. There is no other name. There is no other salvation. Paul, Peter, and John knew. And what a burden. They knew that you and I would be left behind without this oil. You see, something clear in the New Testament Scriptures that these people, God had revealed something to these people that we're going to be left behind. We're going to be left out of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be left out of this wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to be left behind. We're going to be left out totally unless you have this oil in your lamp. And this oil is a truth, and this truth is a light that lights the way into the kingdom of heaven. Paul, Peter, and John knew that you're going to miss this wedding without this oil. So how did the oil-less religious leaders respond to this good news about this endless supply of oil and light? Peter and John had just distributed oil to a poor beggar. So surely the religious people are going to celebrate the fact that there's an endless supply of oil to not just poor beggars, but to anyone and everyone who will call upon this wonderful name, Jesus Let's go see how they responded. Acts 4.13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Because they're just fishermen. They're from Galilee. Come on. No, nothing good comes out of Galilee. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And they also recognized something. Oh, this is where the oil comes from. They recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. There's the oil. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign. And everyone in Jerusalem's talking about this miraculous event. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name. Good luck with that. Are you going to warn them never to give anybody else this oil that just set this man free? This oil that just made this, this lame man walk? You're going to tell them not to give this supernatural oil called truth, called light, called life? Good luck with that. So they called the apostles in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Good luck with that. But Peter and John replied, do you think 
You see, Peter's, his oil is overflowing in his lamp. He's not looking for somebody else to tell him what this oil looks like. He's already received the oil. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? That'd be like going and getting your oil in town. That'd be like giving up the real oil and going and getting some other oil in town. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. We cannot be silent. How now shall we live? Don't, how now shall we live? Let me, let me summarize this question. How now shall we live? Don't go anywhere else for oil. Don't go anywhere else for oil. Don't go anywhere else for oil. Just come to this Jesus for oil. You see, the oil you'll get in town is snake oil. It's not from Jesus. And there is another spirit. The word Satan actually translates adversary. And he markets an oil, but it's snake oil. And it won't fill your lamp with light. It actually fills your oil with darkness, the absence of light. This is the week after Easter. And I clearly communicated the single source of life on Easter Sunday. I, I don't know how to clear it more clearly communicate it than I've just done this past Sunday. The origin of humans' life. Let me put it like this. The origin of human life. I'm convinced. The origin of human life is the breath of God placed inside of Adam in the garden. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a test to see whether or not you're getting snake oil or whether you're getting the real oil of Christ. You see, snake oil tells you another story. I'm convinced that the origin of life itself, that human life finds its origin, and God breathed the breath of life into Adam's body that he formed from the dust of the earth and Adam became a living soul, a living being. But I'm going to tell you, snake oil tells you another story. Now let's take a test. Let's see where you're getting your oil. I have a responsibility to tell you where, where, what the real oil is and what the snake oil is. You see, snake oil tells another story. Snake oil says chance random processes or exploding stars or aliens from other galaxies or ice crystals brought life to the planet called earth. You see, snake oil will not light your lamp as you wait for the bridegroom. So be careful where you get your oil. You see, those five, they had to go to town to get oil. They went to town to try to find truth. They were left behind. You see, they recognized that Peter and John had something different in the book of Acts. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And there it is. There it is. How now shall we live? The people will recognize that you and I have been with Jesus too. Satan is currently serving up a special snake oil called tolerance. 
He's serving at the churches all around the world. And many in the church have taken a liking to this new snake oil called tolerance. The snake oil says that there are many ways into the kingdom of heaven, many ways into the wedding, or everyone goes to the wedding. Don't worry about what Jesus said. Don't worry about that one name under heaven whereby men can be saved. Don't worry about that. Let us tell you the truth. Let us give you some oil. Let us give you our own form of light. But there's a serpent behind that story. Don't get your oil in town. They're not pursuing holiness in town. They're pursuing self in town. And that's not the truth that Jesus came to reveal. Not about self. In Jude 1 verse 3. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I'm going to hold it up. I wish I could have written you about something else, Jude said. But now, in light of this world, I've got to write to you about something else. I'm urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once of all time to his holy people. Defend the source of life, of light, the oil that truly will light your lamp. I say this, verse 4. Because some ungodly people have wormed their ways into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows you to live immoral lives. Those people are getting their oil in town. They've wormed their way into your churches with this idea of tolerance that, that somehow makes this no longer relevant or true. They've got a new way, a new truth, a new life, but it's snake oil. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord. They have denied the source of truth. They have denied the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the oil of truth, the oil of light, the oil of life itself. Those people aren't going to the wedding. They're going to be left behind with their snake oil. One more big point in this session. The pursuit of holiness is not salvation by works. I've said over and over, how now shall we live? We should be in the pursuit of holiness. Some people like to interpret that as somehow a salvation by works. That if I work and I pursue holiness, that I'm looking to be saved because I've done something. You see, the pursuit of holiness is experiencing God through faith and obedience to the truth. The truth is this oil, this life-giving oil that produces light. We are not saved by works. We are saved for works. Do you see the difference? In Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says, God saved you by His grace when you believed. When you believed, God saved you. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for doing, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. What do you think you'll be doing in? How now shall we live? We should be living our lives right now to do the good works that God planned for us long ago. So let, let, me, let me take a snapshot forward, okay? I want to look forward, and then we'll summarize and wrap up. What do you think you'll be doing during the thousand-year reign of Christ on this present earth? Some of you even struggling with that. It, it says we're going to reign with him for a thousand years, before the new heaven, before the new earth. So what do you think you'll be doing? What do you think you individually be doing during that thousand-year reign on this present earth. Jesus will be in Jerusalem. If you are raptured when the bridegroom comes, we talked about that last week, you will go with Jesus to heaven and escape the coming horrors of the great tribulation. Then you will return with Christ as he destroys his enemies, the beast and the false prophet, and cast Satan into a prison for a thousand years. What then? What do you think you'll be doing during the millennial reign of Christ on this present earth? Have you ever looked forward that far to even just use your imagination? Let's look and see how the apostles Paul describes this race to a finish line. This race in a direction that has you and I and believers on the earth with Jesus, the false prophet, and the beast, they're, they're in hell. Satan's in prison. Jesus in Jerusalem on David's throne. And we're scattered around on the present earth. Fast forward and see if this was in Paul's mind when he writes Second Timothy. He knows he's about to be executed. And he knows he's going to be in the presence of God soon. Here's what he says. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now a prize awaits me, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me. <laughs> I say hallelujah. And this prize is not just for Apostle Paul or Peter or John, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. You know what he's describing? There's a group of people who are going to be eagerly looking forward to the shout, the bridegroom is here. Oh, there's going to be a group of people. Yep, to all who are eagerly looking forward to his appearing. And let's go to James 1.12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they'll receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love them. You see this anticipation? They're going to receive a crown of life. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. We do it for what? We do it for an eternal prize. How now shall we live? 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the great shepherd appears... 
You'll receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. How now shall we live with this in our mind? That's how Paul lived. Why do you think he said, I fought the good fight? I kept the faith. Now there's a prize waiting for me. Because he knew what was coming. He made himself ready. He was in waiting for that which was coming. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Paul didn't just love what was coming for himself. He loved the people around them enough to share the oil with them so that they too would be ready and waiting. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when He returns, it is you. I picture Peter and John at the Jerusalem temple and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they see this beggar and they say, silver and gold I don't have, but I've got something better than silver and better than gold. I have the name of Jesus Christ. I have the truth. I have the way. I have the life. I have an oil that will fill your lamp to overflowing. And they give this poor guy this oil, and people protested. Revelation 19.8. She had been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Peter and John were doing this good deed of sharing the oil, the light that will fill the lamp of this man who had never walked. The light of truth that would make him ready for the wedding event. Do you remember all the rewards promised to the overcomers in the seven churches? I went through all of those in those sessions. All the rewards, all the rewards, seven churches, all the rewards. How now shall we live? One last thing. This is it. Jesus revealed the ultimate purpose of his life in John chapter 17. And there's just one verse that I've always said really outlined the ultimate purpose of Jesus' life. And I pray that this verse becomes our life's purpose as well while we await the imminent return of Christ. In John 17, 4, Jesus says to the Father, I brought glory to you here on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. How awesome is it to believe that when God puts his oil in our lamp, he also puts his purpose in our lives. And that we could one day say to him, the Father, like Jesus said to the Father, I brought you glory here on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for the light, the oil that fills our lamp. I thank you, Lord, that you revealed to us the truth. We didn't find it in town. We didn't get it from the serpent. We received this from the name above all names. The Spirit of Christ himself has revealed it through the Word of God. Now, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to stand against the opposition, wisdom and discernment in these difficult days that we live right now. 
And I pray, Father, that especially in this time of pandemic and when people are afraid, Lord, that we would take hold of this oil of truth, the light of the world. And may our lamps be full on the day that the bridegroom comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. And amen.